All right. We are back. You know, I love doing things on this program like discussing the work of someone like Robert Caro. We are, I think it's fair to say, uh, it's no secret, huge fans of investigative journalists and people who dig out facts that others are trying to hide. So, no doubt, we will talk more about Robert Cairo's work in the future. But I do want to return to that article that was in uh, The New Yorker from one other little piece. Said Cairo, in interviews, silence is the weapon. Silence and people's need to fill it. As long as the person isn't you, the interviewer. Two of fiction's greatest interviewers, George Simonson's Inspector Magret and John le Carre's George Smiley, have little devices they use to keep themselves from talking and to let silence do its work. Magret cleans his ever-present pipe, tapping it gently on his desk and then scraping it out until the witness breaks down and talks. Smiley takes off his eyeglasses and polishes them with the thick end of his necktie. As for me, I have less class. When I'm waiting for the person I'm interviewing to break a silence by giving me a piece of information I want, I write SU for shut up in my notebook. If anyone were ever to look through my notebooks, he would find a lot of SUs. Which leads us, somewhat sadly, into another obituary. I have the San Francisco Chronicle's obituary in my hand. I understand the New York Times did a more extensive piece on David Fetchheimer. The headline in the Chronicle was, Popular Sleuth Adept at Getting Sources to Talk. The obituary by Stephen Rubenstein notes, David Fetchheimer didn't look like whatever a private eye is supposed to look like. He had long gray hair, a beard, and wire rims. He looked a lot like the people he got information from, the ones he met on the street or by knocking on a door, or by making small talk in a cafe or a tavern or a church pew. If you can't get people to talk to you, he told an interviewer in 1984, you can't survive. I had a chance to speak briefly about David Fetchheimer with two of his associates, who I hope will tell more about him in future installments of this program. But let me quote from this obituary, which is a fine piece of writing. The English professor look was no accident. Fetchheimer was studying Irish writer James Joyce at San Francisco State University in the 1960s when, according to his son, Zach, he picked up a copy of the detective classic The Maltese Falcon and read it in one sitting. The next day, it occurred to him that he might prefer being a real detective instead of reading about a fictional one. He walked into the Pinkerton Agency in San Francisco. He asked whether there was any work for a prospective detective with no experience. Something about his manner convinced the Pinkerton people that there was, and he was sent to investigate a labor dispute. Fetchheimer worked for Pinkerton for two years before getting a job with renowned San Francisco detective Hal Lipset, the man famous for hiding a microphone in a martini olive. In 1976, Fetchheimer opened his own agency and began poking around on behalf of well-known San Francisco lawyers at the middle of three figures per hour, plus, as they say, expenses. Zach Fetchheimer, who was also a former partner, said his father never interviewed witnesses over the phone. He did his background work, and then he would show up and knock on the door. He relied on body language and temperament. He didn't intimidate or threaten. He'd just show up and listen. He was a good listener. In an interview, Fetchheimer once said Detective Sam Spade was his inspiration, but he sought to do him one better. Sam Spade may be the best detective in literature, he said, but he's still a lousy detective. He never gets paid, he sleeps with his clients, and he winds up poor. Fetchheimer indeed did better than that. He earned enough to uh, become a vintner after purchasing a vacation home up in 
Healdsburg. Bay Area legend, interesting character. I hope we'll be able to say a little bit more about him in the future. Discussing Fetchheimer reminded me of someone else who was another Bay Area legend that we were privileged to interview on this program a couple of times. William Turner was a man who, as an FBI agent, challenged the Bureau's director, J. Edgar Hoover, and somehow managed to live to tell the tale. Turner was a pretty sharp guy. He figured out back in 1976 that Deep Throat was likely to be W. Mark Felt, which I still admire him for. We spoke with him about his excellent book, Rear View Mirror, looking back at the FBI, the CIA, and other tales. And with all this talk of late about the FBI and FBI former directors doing investigations, high-powered investigations of, well, let's just say highly placed political figures whose name we are trying to not mention. Suffice it to say that Robert Mueller uh, disappointed an awful lot of people uh, in his report, although it seems clear enough at this moment in time that it surely does not exonerate the way that some people claim it exonerates. But I am a little bit heartbroken that people so got their hopes up about an investigation by a former FBI director. So if you don't mind, at this point, I'd like to take a look back at previous FBI directors as seen through the eyes of William Turner. Bill Turner describes how as a young FBI agent back in 1954, he was seeking action and found it. Said Turner, on March 12, 1954, I was involved in a shootout when three robbers wearing false noses and spectacles held up the Greenwood branch of the Seattle First National Bank, leaving one police officer dead and two wounded. But the Dillinger days were over, and bank stick-ups were, by and large, the metier of rank amateurs. So agents created the illusion of big-time crime. I recall in particular the matter of Leroy Jefferson, who had been declared delinquent by his draft board for failure to furnish a forwarding address. The FBI's role was to find him and connect him with the draft board. Jefferson was easily traced, but when an agent knocked on the door of his apartment, he slipped out a back window. Affronted, the FBI obtained a rare selective service arrest warrant and mounted a full-scale raid on the apartment, drawing a large crowd. When assistant special agent in charge, Clarence Kelly, a square-jawed Dick Tracy type, boomed out for Jefferson to surrender, he meekly complied incredulous that all the fuss was over his failure to keep in touch with the nice folks at the draft board. Once Jefferson had been cuffed and driven away, we all hurriedly drove off. So hurriedly, in fact, that Kelly was left stranded at the scene. He had to find a payphone to call me to pick him up. He later went on to bigger things, becoming an FBI director in the post-Hoover era. As for Jefferson, his future was a long stretch in prison, not for the Selective Service infraction, the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, had him under surveillance as a major figure in the largest drug ring in the West. A few months after he was released on the FBI charge, he was quietly arrested in L.A. by FBN agents and the LAPD on felony narcotics trafficking warrants. He was convicted and sentenced to 20 years. But the juxtaposition of the FBI's petty case with the FBN's major one jolted me into recognizing that J. Edgar Hoover was ignoring organized crime. In those days, the FBI had no jurisdiction over illegal drugs, although Hoover only had to ask Congress and they would have obliged. Instead, it was FBN director Dr. Harry Anslinger who earned the label, that bastard from the mob. Hoover camouflaged his negligence by launching with much fanfare a top 10 fugitive program. But the criminal elite 
weren't targeted. As I recall in a piece I wrote for the Washington Post magazine in 1979, the FBI kept its sights on the human tumbleweeds of crime. Bank robbers, car thieves, freight car burglars, the way-faced little men who passed bad checks in bunches, the hulking waterfront pilferers, cheap thugs, barroom knifers, wife beaters, and alcoholic stick-up men. When informants reported mob activity, I was instructed, put it in the GIIF, General Investigative Intelligence File, which was a catch-all for information on which no action was to be taken. I asked my supervisor, Julius Matson, why we were squandering resources on criminal tadpoles when Mafia Big Fish went unnetted. Don't mention the Mafia, he retorted. Hoover doesn't acknowledge that it exists. At first, I thought this was because he had established his gang-busting reputation in the 1930s and didn't want to risk taking on the mob, which was a formidable and dangerous foe. That might have been part of it. But there was talk around the water cooler about the boss meeting with New York Mafia Don Frank Costello after an introduction by columnist Walter Winchell on benches in Central Park and suites in the Waldorf Astoria, where both men were comped. Said Bill Turner, the FBI chief was a heavy better on horse races, and Costello tipped him off as to which races were fixed. So I wasn't surprised, years later, to learn how mobbed up the director's pals were. One was Louis Rosensteel, the head of Shenley Industries, who donated a liquor company stock to fund the J. Edgar Hoover Foundation, the stated purpose of which was to fight communism. From their early bootlegging days today, the Rosensteel had been close to Meyer Lansky, the so-called chairman of the board of organized crime. Skipping ahead, on November 14, 1957, there was an event so resounding that I thought Hoover could no longer duck the organized crime issue. Seventy-five mafia capos and their lieutenants from cities around the country converged on the small town of Appalachian, New York, for a summit council to resolve a territorial dispute. The conclave was held in the estate of Joseph Barbara, on whom state trooper Edgar Croswell had been keeping a watchful eye. When Crosswell observed the assemblage, he called for reinforcements and closed in, bagging, among other capos, Santos Traficante of New York, Joseph Joe Bananas Bonanno, the Midwest Rackets Coordinator, and Simone Scalarzi of Los Angeles. Some fled through the woods and escaped. Although continuing to deny that, although continuing to deny that there was a mafia, Hoover reacted to the embarrassing headlines by creating what was called the Top Hoodlum Program which turned out to be an artful dodge. Each field office was instructed to compile a list of the top 10 hoodlums in its territory and actively acquire intelligence on them. But hoodlums weren't necessarily members of organized crime. The program was so arbitrary that in New York, Chicago, and Los Angeles, 10 would be a short list. While in outposts such as Butte and Anchorage, there would be no one of any stature. Tellingly, there was no provisions for the field offices to exchange the intelligence on a national scale. Anyway, we highly recommend the writings of uh, William Turner, both about his time in the FBI and, more importantly, after he left the Bureau to become an investigative journalist. He worked for years for Ramparts magazine. And, again, we just feel privileged to have had a chance to sit down with him and talk about some of this. I've I've always had my suspicions that an awful lot of the lore about the Mafia is um, perhaps about as accurate as the lore about the Old West, It's based on reality, it's colorful stuff, and yet surely a lot of it misses the mark of historical accuracy. The Week magazine's current edition sees fit to talk about the Mafia today in its briefing section. In response to the Week's question of how big are their ranks, referring to the mob, 
The answer was there are about 3,000 members and affiliates in the U.S., the FBI estimates. And they refer to the five families of New York, Gambino, Bonanno, Colombo, Genovese, and Lucchese, who have survived since Charles Lucky Luciano founded the Commission, the Mafia's governing body, in the early 1930s. You know, a lot of Italians would like to point out that in spite of their uh, association with the mob, there are other organizations, ethnically based, that would have to be considered organized crime. I also understand, in my limited knowledge, that uh, in some cases, people in the mafia, after seeing their portrayals in movies and reading about how they're written about in books like Mario Puzo's The Godfather, started to consciously imitate their semi-fictional or fictional portrayals. And one big question, which I don't have an answer to, is if there is a reduction in the number of members of the Cosa Nostra, the Mafia, how much of that reduction in numbers can we attribute to their curtailment from the FBI? I'm a big fan of old-time radio, and I have enjoyed listening to many, many of the programs that were produced back in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. There was one in the 30s, I think it originated, titled Gangbusters, which unfailingly portrays the FBI and its G-men as rooting out crime. If you listen to some of these episodes, and I I hope you will, dear listener, you'll find that, um, well, they seem rather quaint and humorous. This might be a good time to take a flying leap into the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to the week magazine, it was a good week last week for holding your fire after armed police responding to a home invasion call in Oregon found the suspect cornered in a bathroom and burst in to find an active Roomba robot vacuum cleaner whose noisy collisions with the walls had alarmed the house sitter. It was, on the other hand, a bad week last week for hoarders with the news that an Indiana man is suing his parents for $86,000 because they destroyed his huge collection of pornography. The plaintiff, identified only as Charlie, claims that after he moved out of his parents' house, they destroyed a dozen crates of his porn videos. This cache, he said, included some films that are extra valuable because they're out of print. And it surely was an ugly week, I'd have to say, for diners, with the news that The Wilson a restaurant in Manhattan, has debuted special dishes for dogs and their owners to share on an outdoor patio. In case you're interested, the menu includes a $42 grilled ribeye with baby vegetables and a $14 bowl of mixed berries. And whose dog doesn't enjoy a bowl of mixed berries? And finally, we have this item, which I think we're going to describe as both bad and ugly. A both bad an ugly week for immersive experiences with the news that the world's first 5D pornographic movie theater has opened in Amsterdam. While watching 3D pornography, moviegoers experience the other two advertised dimensions through, quote, motion chairs, unquote, and, I find this alarming, jets of air and water that the theater owners promise will leave them, quote, feeling energized, unquote. I don't know about you, but for me, 
Assuming I was immersed in 3D pornography, I don't want jets of water directed at me. That's not water! Exactly. You know, and as much as we enjoy bagging on dubious technology here on Radio Parallax, I do want to take my hat off to some some high-tech stuff and, and how accurate it may be. I'm referring in this instance to the fact that thousands of previously uncharted underwater mountains have now been discovered, according to New Scientist magazine, and they're included in the most detailed map of the ocean floor ever produced. The submerged peaks, also known as seamounts, were identified by a team at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography in San Diego. Their new topo map has uncovered more than 5,000 new seamounts and possibly as many as 10,000. The updated map will be valuable for climate modeling and tsunami prediction, they say, because seamounts can affect ocean currents that influence climate and can be the scene of huge underwater landslides. Only about 10% of the seabed has been mapped with sonar. I did not know that. The rest is mapped by measuring the effects of gravity on the sea's surface. This is possible because seamounts exert a greater gravitational force on the ocean than flat seabed does. The result is a slight difference in sea surface heights. Satellites can accurately measure these differences to infer where seamounts exist. But here's the kind of accuracy you need. These instruments measure the distance of the sea surface to within 21 millimeters, which is twice the accuracy of previous sensors. So you've got a satellite orbiting the Earth, and it can measure the sea surface height within, well... An inch is 25 millimeters within 21 millimeters. Yow. I got to say, that's, that's pretty amazing. Something else which I think is pretty amazing, but in an entirely different sense, is this item. An item related to satellites. Quoting from the week, I have this. Saudi Arabia is within a year of finishing its first nuclear reactor, according to new satellite images, but has yet to sign on to international regulations intended to prevent civilian atomic programs from being used to build nuclear weapons. Follow me so far? The Kingdom of Saudi Arabia insists the reactor on the outskirts of Riyadh will be used only for peaceful research. But Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, remember him, said last year that his country would build a nuclear weapon as soon as possible if its arch-rival, Iran, did the same. Anybody getting nervous yet? Members of the U.S. Congress condemned the Trump administration. Darn it, darn it, I couldn't, I knew I couldn't make it through. Members of the U.S. Congress condemned the Trump administration last month for secretly approving permits for U.S. companies to sell sensitive nuclear technology to the Saudis. Referring to the murder of dissident journalist Jamal Khashoggi by Saudi hitmen, Representative Brad Sherman, Democrat of California, said, If you cannot trust the regime with a bone saw, you should not trust them with nuclear weapons. Now let's think about this a minute. 18 years ago in September of 2001, 15 Saudi citizens were involved in hijacking four airplanes and flying them into buildings. It is crystal clear that the plot that was the 9-11 attacks had support from inside the kingdom of Saudi Arabia from numerous members of the Saudi royal family. Saudi Arabia 
has never been called to account for this, let alone what happened to Jamal Khashoggi. And now we're talking about them, the government of Saudi Arabia, which is the same thing as the royal family of Saudi Arabia, which for centuries, for millennia, in fact, was known as Arabia until the House of Saud took over, getting it renamed after the ruling family. Does it seem at all reasonable that the current administration in Washington would approve permits for United States companies to sell sensitive nuclear technology to these folks? Meanwhile, after we put the screws to Iran, supposedly for its uh, lack of cooperation in uh, stopping its nuclear program, the administration had waivers in place for Iranian oil being shipped to various allies and Now, they're apparently not going to renew these waivers and thus insist that nations around the world stop buying Iranian oil. All this is described as a victory for National Security Advisor John Bolton. Bolton and officials in the Energy Department have argued that it's time for the administration to make good on its desire to push Iran's oil exports to zero. What could possibly go wrong? I can't imagine this would encourage them to build nuclear weapons. Can you imagine that? Anyway, if you weren't nervous enough about events in Saudi Arabia and Iran, let's talk about that other country in the Middle East, which the U.S. has a special relationship with, Israel. David Remnick, writing in the Talk of the Town section of The New Yorker, had the following to say. Said Remnick, 21 years ago, Benzion Netanyahu, scholar of medieval history and father of an Israeli prime minister serving his first term, relaxed with a reporter at his home in West Jerusalem and wondered aloud if his boy, who went by Bibi, was made of the right stuff. Benzion was an uncompromising ideologue, a maximalist, and member of the revisionist movement. The revisionist hymn included the line, The Jordan has two banks. This one is ours, and the other one too. He despised the liberal elites. Supporters of the Labor Party, the dominant force in Israeli politics for decades, did not, in his mind, live in the real world. Jewish history is a large measure of history by holocausts, he said that day. He died in 2012 at the age of 102. Any lingering worries he might have had that his son lacked the political cunning and ideological metal to put an end to the two-state expectations raised by the Oslo Peace Accords were misplaced. Benjamin Netanyahu, who won a fifth term last week, has proved himself shrewd, cynical, and willing to do and say anything to survive in office. Practicing a politics of division, he targets enemies in the press, the academy, and the courts. Increasingly, he finds his global allies in the ever-growing club of the illiberal international, from the Sunni Arab leaders in his own region, to Viktor Orban in Hungary, Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil, and Vladimir Putin in Russia. He's determined that the world no longer cares very much about the Palestinians or about democratic niceties. He has marginalized the left, even the center-left. Netanyahu's paramount interest, though, is self-interest. He has not only extinguished any pretense of coming to a settlement with the Palestinians, he now entertains the idea of annexing the Jewish settlements on the West Bank. By at least speaking the language of annexation, he could try to win the enduring support of the racists and absolutists in a potentially right-wing coalition who might in turn squash the multiple corruption indictments that he faces. Skipping ahead a bit, 
Under pressure from Barack Obama, Netanyahu delivered a speech at Bar Ilan University in 2009 in which he paid lip service to his two-state solution. That has all changed, especially now that he has found a like-minded protege in Donald Trump. Just as Netanyahu provided Trump instructions on the political possibilities of right-wing populism, Trump has provided Netanyahu with instruction on the possibilities of outrageous invective, voter suppression, and disdain for the law. Netanyahu now delights in the use of such phrases as fake news. Investigations into his financial adventures are witch hunts. To suppress the Arab vote in last week's election, his supporters mounted more than a thousand cameras at polling places where Arab citizens ordinarily vote. The better to intimidate them. And of course, both men like a wall. As Trump puts it, walls work. Just look at Israel. To which his proud mentor tweeted, President Trump is right. I built the wall along Israel's southern border. It stopped all legal immigration. Great success. Great idea. Noted Remnick, Netanyahu was initially wary of Trump, suspecting an erratic dunce had entered the Oval Office. Over time, he was not necessarily dissuaded from that impression, but was beyond enchanted when he realized that Trump was prepared to do whatever he asked. Trump has given Netanyahu one long-desired prize after another. He pulled out of the Iran nuclear deal. He moved the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem and, in the midst of the Israeli election campaign, recognized the nation's sovereignty over the Golan Heights. For two years, meanwhile, Trump has talked about a secret plan to resolve the Arab-Israeli problem. The idea is that Jared Kushner, Trump's Metternich, will somehow succeed where more than a century's worth of diplomacy has failed. The plan is likely to call for enormous Palestinian concessions, which the Palestinians will almost certainly reject. And I think I'd like to end on a happier note, so let's just leave it there. Let's close with some inspirational words by Sacramento attorney Philip Murray, who posted this in response to a photograph on the internet showing Bernie Sanders incorrectly identified uh, at a civil rights event back in the 1960s. Bernie Sanders was at this event, a civil rights protest. Said Mr. Murray, My father was shot and very badly wounded in World War II. His left brachial artery was severed by a bullet from a machine gun in a pillbox, concrete machine gun installation that he and two other scouts had found right after it found them, according to Daddy's telling of the event. His medic left him for dead. The medic, in the investigation done by the Army as part of dad receiving the silver star, wrote that he had found a lot of soldiers in pools of blood, but my father was the first soldier he'd found in a pond of blood. Black soldiers who came behind the white soldiers to bury the dead found daddy and realized he was alive. He was taken to a black aid station and given direct transfusions from black soldiers. Over the course of the next several days, he was in and out of consciousness. At one point, he woke up and there were two army doctors standing at the foot of his bed discussing whether or not a black man's blood would keep a white man alive. They did not know. They were going to find out with him. So if daddy was not the first white person to receive direct transfusion from a black person, he was at the very least the first one either of these doctors had ever heard of. This experience convinced my father that we are all the same. That is how I was raised. I have known since I was a small child that segregation was wrong. I have always known that we are all equal members of the human race. I was and remain a supporter of civil rights for all. I'm glad to see Mr. Sanders is like me, 
a supporter of equal rights. Well said, Philip Murray. Well said. That about does it for today's Radio Parallax. Please do what you can to support the station, which is bringing this to you. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. I am, as always, your faithful host, Douglas Everett. We'll see you next week.